Welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. I'm an Episcopal priest here in Austin, Texas. I'm also uh, in recovery from uh, alcoholism and uh, entered into my 50th year of sobriety. Uh, anniversaries coming up in December. So uh, very, very grateful for the journey of recovery that I've had for the teachers that I've met along the way. And one of those teachers is uh, Robert uh, A. Johnson. In this series, um, it's titled Inner Gold. And, and we're looking at one of Johnson's lesser known books. Uh, and it's of the same title, Inner Gold. And it's a, it's a study of psychological projection. And his thesis is basically this, that we are rich internally. Um, we are children of God. Uh, and, and he, he uh, describes that as the gold, the inner gold that each of us carries inside of him or herself. And, and that gold feels very weighty. It's, it's like it's more than we can handle. We can't believe who we really are. And so we have a tendency to project that out onto the world, out onto other people, and we uh, idealize them. Uh, we, we make them gods for us in, in a sense. And he says that, that ultimately what we've got to do is begin to take our gold back. It's really another way of saying discover who we really are and come to accept that at the deepest levels of self. So that's what we explored in the first couple of episodes, how that projection works. And now he wants to go a little deeper. This is chapter two, and it's about loneliness, which uh, is really something that we alcoholics and addicts know a great deal about. Uh, the, the big book says somewhere, you know, we, we know loneliness as few other people do. Uh, why is that? It's because we've cut ourselves off from so much. We, uh, at least the way I look at it, is is I entered into a relationship with alcohol that took the place of uh, people, took the place of my true self, took the place of God, and uh, that was my companion. Uh, and then it abandoned me, and so loneliness is uh, is really where we wind up. So I'm kind of looking forward to doing this, uh, this chapter with you. I think Johnson gives us some really good insights into what's happening here. Again, as I did in the first couple of uh, episodes, I'm going to do more reading than I usually do. But Johnson is a wonderful teacher, and I think he says things uh, far better than I could. So uh, let's just kind of jump right in. We'll listen to what he has to say. I'll make a few comments uh, along the way, but try to keep them to a minimum. As I mentioned before, he has little sub-chapters, uh, subtitles uh, in, in, in his chapter, and uh, this one begins with myths of loneliness. Johnson starts off saying, I suffered so much from loneliness in my early life. It took me years to understand that this is a modern ailment. In places with traditional lifestyles, there seems to be little or no loneliness. In India, a friend told me, Robert, I've never been lonely in my life. I don't know anything about it. Imagine someone who has never been lonely. Traditional people are surrounded by community, family, marriage, and religion. 
that dictate the details of their lives. They are not vulnerable in this way. They may be poor materially, but emotionally, they are more contained. Modernized Indians, on the other hand, experience many of the difficulties that we do in the West. Only when we are not asking someone to carry our gold for us, can we look at him as a human being. And when we see others as human beings, it is possible not to be lonely. Others cannot assuage our loneliness. Loneliness is an interior matter. Even being in love has nothing to do with the other person. It's narcissistic. When we are in an actual relationship with another person and just not our projection, love is possible. So what Johnson is, is asking us to do here is to go deep within ourselves uh, and to find that part of ourselves that is cut off, isolated, and alone, and, and begin to enter into a relationship with that. Uh, uh, some authors call that our true self. Uh, the big book says what? The great reality is within. And this is where the journey has to go. It has to go uh, inwardly uh, to find the self that uh, we are in so many ways trying to hide from. Goes on now to say the collective unconscious often produces myths that tell us what is happening or about to happen in a culture. I'd like to discuss two myths about loneliness. The first is the flying Dutchman. There are many variations on the story and all go something like this. A young man has committed an indiscretion, a transgression that resembles the one that caused Adam and Eve to be expelled from the Garden of Eden. He is the captain of the ship, the Flying Dutchman. As punishment, he and his ship are banished to sail the storm clouds where they must stay until someone loves him. He cannot ask anyone to love him. He has to wait. That's the terrible thing about loneliness. You can't ask for relief. It's a kind of paralysis. You can only hope that someone will sense your dilemma and help. The Flying Dutchman has been banished, quote, above, unquote, to the stormy upper world. Loneliness is always up there, an abstraction. There are billions of people in the world we do not need to feel lonely, but we alienate ourselves from ourselves. And then we head up to the clouds, to the stormy aspect of loneliness. When our feet are on the ground, we feel connected to the energy of the world and don't feel so lonely. When we connect with the lower parts of ourselves, we are in relationship with others as well. The word saunter comes from the Middle Ages when we sainted or sanctified inanimate objects and not just people. Even the cross was sainted and so was the earth. The earth was called Saint Terrare. And so when we saunter, 
we are in contact with St. Terari, the sainted earth, sauntering grounds and connects us. It's an important cure for loneliness. Now, most of you know of uh, the thing that uh, really interested me in the history of AA was this thing called two-way prayer. And I've been practicing that for going on 30 years now. And oftentimes, well, not, I won't say oftentimes, but, but frequently uh, in, in my two-way prayer, I'll get the guidance, uh, go work in the yard, go dig in the earth, uh, get out of your head, Bill, you know, and, uh, and go connect because I'm an alcoholic. And, and, and ultimately, my illness is one of disconnection disconnection from from life from others from god from my true self and there's just something about being grounded that is is the beginning of reconnecting uh humus humility the two words uh, come from the same root to get the down in dig in the dirt dig in the dirt every evening back to the story every evening as the winds whirl around the chimneys the villagers hear the flying Dutchman moaning, crying out in loneliness. They all rush indoors, closing their doors and windows to keep out this awful sound. For years, the young man lives like that, up in the storm clouds, moaning in the chimney tops of northern Germany. Then one day, a peasant maiden hears his moaning, and because of her good heart, Pay attention to that one. And because of her good heart, goes out into the yard and calls to him. She asks the flying Dutchman to come to her, and that is all it takes. He comes down and is relieved of his loneliness. They have a love affair, and his humanity is restored. Only a peasant woman in touch with the earth has the good sense to do this. Many of us are flying Dutchmen and our loneliness is unendurable. We have an insatiable need for entertainment. We moderns watch TV and other screens more than seven hours a day. We search for anything that might assuage our longing, especially late at night when the howling in the chimney tops is most painful. Loneliness is on the rise and advertisers exploit this. If you do thus and so, you'll feel better. Johnson says there are three kinds of loneliness. Loneliness for the past. Loneliness for what has not yet been realized. And the profound loneliness of being close to God. The third kind is actually the solution, he says. A good myth doesn't leave you out on a limb. It describes the difficulty and also offers a solution. Subsection, loneliness for the past. The first kind of loneliness, loneliness for the past, is regressive. It attacks early in life, during adolescence or early adulthood. We want to return to the place we came from. We want the comfort and security of the good old days, the way things used to be. How many times do your dreams take you back to early times? the playground, the backyard, the tree you used to climb, your grade school friends. This is the backward turning loneliness, 
a hunger for the Garden of Eden. There isn't much we can do about it. We can't go back. The Bible says that there is an angel with a flaming sword at the gate of Eden, forbidding re-entry. Backward turning loneliness is the mother complex, the wish to return to your mother's womb. It's especially dangerous in men because it becomes the will to fail, the propensity to relinquish power and regress. It's the spoiler in a man, stronger than most men are able to admit. When you have an exam at school or an interview for a job and you feel terrified, this is probably the fear of success. The enemy is inside. Loneliness for the way things used to be can spoil a marriage, wreck a job, and leave you inert in almost every aspect of life. No one is free of it. It is the wish to return to primal innocence. Grieving is another manifestation of hearkening back to what was. When we lose something, sadness and loneliness are understandable, but they are backward looking. It's not just the loss of the other, it's also the loss of an arrangement, a place to put our gold. We may not feel ready to take it back, to bear its weight, but all backward looking qualities are doomed. We can't go backward. One of the things uh, I realized uh, very intensely in my first year of recovery uh, was that uh, I had a system of enablers uh, back in New York City where I'm from originally, and I got sober in Detroit. And, and two things I knew about God's will and my future, uh, and they were inextricably bound together. Uh, one was don't drink, don't drink, uh, no matter what. And, and the second thing I knew intuitively uh, was you can't go back. That if, if I went back, I was going to die. That I had to stay. I couldn't run. I, I had to face my demons. And, uh, and boy, that was a whole new uh, territory for me. And I think it is for most addicts that we come to that place where uh, we, we know the places we can run to. We know the the backward journeys we can take. And if we take them, uh, we're doomed. Uh, and so we have, to, we have to stay and uh, feel and then go through. Johnson says the first step toward curing any psychological problem is to acknowledge it. When you can put a name and form to it, when you can say what you are lonely for, you're halfway free. Being conscious is your greatest ally. If you are able to admit to yourself how much you wish to fail, this is the beginning of a cure. How many of us choke on uh, just the first time we say, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict? The second kind of loneliness is the longing for what is possible but has not yet been realized. An alive, vigorous, functioning human being has a vivid, intuition of what he is capable of. His intuition leaps forward and he imagines what is possible. 
He fantasizes a perfect woman or a love affair that will touch him to the core. He feels lonely for what is not. He thinks that he sees out there what will assuage his loneliness. But that can only happen in here. When our value and sense of meaning are always outside ourselves, there is someone, something, some place, or some condition that will cure our problem just as soon as we are struck in an insoluble problem. My next book should be entitled, Johnson says, just as soon as, because just as soon as psychology dominates almost everyone, just as soon as I get married, just as soon as I get divorced, just as soon as I have more money, just as soon as the cancer treatment is over, just as soon as is an intermediate stage where you sense what matters to you, but you externalize it and don't yet claim it as your own. Your felt need might be a new task, a new psychic capacity, or a new insight but it is too soon to realize that it is your own gold. To sense this value, even if you cannot yet own it, is a start. The first kind of loneliness for what once was drives us backward and downward. The second kind for what is not yet drives us forward and upward. At least this is a progressive loneliness. It drives us to accomplishments. But both of these kinds of loneliness drive us. And I just wanted to pause and, and just concentrate on that word driven, drive, to drive us. All of Johnson's works are really an introduction to the unconscious. To make conscious what is unconscious is the journey. To allow it to come up into awareness is, is what the journey is, of recovery is really all about. Um, so so keep, keep, keep that in mind, uh, the drivenness how many of us know, I mean, we want to get sober, we want to stop doing this, we want to start doing that, uh, our intentions are good, and yet what happens? Something from below seems to creep up and grab us and take control of our lives. What is this thing? Well, this is the unconscious, and 90 to 95% of our mind is made up of the unconscious. And if my little 5% thinks it's going to take it on and beat it, uh, good luck, you know. But, but the awareness that it's there, the welcoming of it, the, we stop fighting everything and everyone, including the unconscious. It doesn't mean we give into it, but it does mean that we meet it and we make it, we allow it even better to become conscious, to become conscious. Next uh, subchapter, the inner world calls. 
Johnson says there's a Hindu myth that tells us about the nature of loneliness, how it comes to be and what to do about it. It's like the Flying Dutchman, but more elaborate. Here we go. There was a fine young king. He was vigorous, strong, and a good man in every respect. He loved to hunt. And one day he was hunting deer on horseback with his courtiers. In Indian mythology, the call of the inner world, the call of the unconscious, is often portrayed as a deer that is tantalizingly close, but eludes being caught. The king and his courtiers were galloping along when the king saw a deer just out of bow and arrow range. He veered off and began following it, but the miraculous deer kept just outside his range. The king went plunging further and further into the forest, chasing the deer all day. So intent was he in his masculine vigor to catch this prized animal. By late afternoon, the king was irretrievably lost and the deer had vanished. What a wonderful deer. He gets you where you need to go and then leaves you. <laughs> Ponder that one with your addiction. <laughs> it takes us to where we need to go, you know, uh, and then it vanishes. The king was exhausted and rather frightened as he was now separated from his courtiers. Being a wise young man, he got off his horse and sat down. <laughs> if you don't know what to do, sit quietly until your wits come back. Suddenly he heard a beautiful song. A maiden was singing as he had never heard before and he fell in love with her very voice. He got up began to walk toward the sound and soon came upon her. The maiden was as lovely as her voice and the king, overwhelmed by her beauty, instantly lost his heart to her. Here comes the projection. He asked, are you married? And the maiden said, no. The king said, will you be my queen? And the maiden replied, you must ask my father. And so he asked her to take him to her father, and she did. The father, himself a wise man, was delighted at the prospect of having a king for a son-in-law, but he didn't let his enthusiasm appear too obvious. So he said, you may have my daughter as your wife under one condition. She must never see water. If you replace the word water, Johnson says, with the word reality, you will understand this story easily. The king agreed and the young couple married, but there was one problem, keeping the queen from seeing water. The king did his best to arrange for the queen to see no water, but the task was more difficult than he anticipated. The palace was located right along the river that ran through the royal city. So the king ordered the royal laborers to build a brick wall alongside the river. Before he would take the queen outdoors or up to the palace roof, he also had to be careful that there was no rain on the horizon. In fact, 
the king spent almost all his time arranging things so the queen would not see water, and he did little else. The kingdom was going to seed, and he wasn't performing most of his kingly duties. How does the palace work? What do you do? The servants told him, we spend all our time making sure the queen does not see water. What is this myth telling us? The king is in the throes of the forward-looking possibility, but his newfound love, who would fill his heart and bring him all the legitimate happiness in the world, has a condition laid upon her, that she must never be subjected to reality. Every love affair, every stardust romance carries this prohibition. It will work as long as you don't subject it to reality, as long as it doesn't come down to ordinary everydayness. If ordinary everydayness water in the symbolism of the story ever douses this fallen in love quality, the feeling dissolves instantly. That is the story of romantic love. So uh, listen up <laughs> out there, uh, all, all of the love addicts uh, in the audience, eh? Uh, the head courtier comes to the king and says, sire, let us make a garden on the rooftop. We can plant trees and beautiful plants and put a roof over it so that even if it rains, there will be no difficulty. You and the queen can spend time in the garden and be happy. They did, and it was a success. One day, the courtier asked, Sire, are you not thirsty for the sight of water? And the king admitted, I'm parched, but I don't dare pursue my wish or the queen will be in trouble. So the courtier suggested, your majesty, I can build a fountain in the middle of the garden and surround it with greenery so thick that the queen will never see it. You can gaze upon the fountain in private and be refreshed. It was done. The king went regularly to the fountain and he was pleased. Then one day, inevitably, the queen happened upon the fountain. She was delighted for an instant, and then she vanished. Our idealism, our noble motives, our loftiest intuitions perish at the first contact with reality. The queen disappeared, and the king was consumed with loneliness. Everything he wanted in the world, and he'd had a touch of it, was gone. He could not eat or drink. Nothing could assuage his loneliness. The courtiers tried to cheer him up. They gave him the best of everything. But when someone is in the throes of that kind of loneliness, he is inconsolable. Nothing anyone can do, no possessions, no amount of money, fame, or entertainment can break through that loneliness. We have seen something that we are not yet able to encompass, and it is snatched away. 
This is the cruelest loneliness of all. The king was in the level of hell that is frozen over, and no one knew what to do. It had never happened before, and they didn't have a cure for it. Then one wise man observed that when the queen vanished, a small frog had appeared in the roof garden beside the fountain. He didn't know what it meant, but he had seen it. The king heard about the frog at the fountain and went up to the garden and smashed it flat with his own hands. Then he declared that all the frogs in the kingdom were to be killed. For weeks, peasants trudged toward the palace with sacks of dead frogs to collect their bounties. Thousands and thousands of frogs were killed and the kingdom was spending all of its time and energy killing frogs and carrying them away to the royal palace. The king had all the frogs killed because he thought the frog was in some way responsible for the disappearance of his queen. That's a strange symptom of loneliness. We self-perpetuate our loneliness, killing every frog we see. Somehow when I was reading this little section, I, I, I thought of uh, Putin uh, in Russia. I mean, what's his pathology? What's, what's undergirding him uh, taking uh, possession of his mind? You know, it's a madness. It's a madness. He sits at a table 15 feet long with people at the other side. You talk about loneliness. You talk about delusion. And you talk about separation. And, and, and the ultimate madness that this can engender. Enough politics. Finally, one day, the frog king came to see the king, and he said, Your Majesty, you're about to exterminate my entire species. I am the father of your queen. She returned to the land of the frogs when you broke your vow. The king listened. He liked the frog king and made peace with him. As a result, the frog king brought his daughter, the little frog, by the fountain back to life. Here was the queen in all her splendor. The king embraced her and was happy again. And the queen was no longer compelled to stay away from water. Transformation and redemption. This myth of the king and his frog queen is a story of transformation and redemption. If you're caught in the kind of loneliness that has no comfort and cannot be assuaged, and you hear the wisdom of this story, it will help. This is how to get through the second kind of loneliness. If you have touched something of heaven, something that was given to you miraculously, but is not yet ready for contact with reality. When reality touches it, and inevitably it will, the dream will vanish, and your loneliness will return worse than before. You must touch the inner world and learn to bear the sight of water without going to pieces. When you restore your connection to the unconscious, to spirit, your beloved will come back cured of her reality phobia, excuse me, 
Both the king and the queen had learned to live without water, reality. But the king couldn't stand it. Or maybe it was the queen who couldn't stand it. No relationship can survive unless it includes reality, water. Many fine spiritually evolved people are at the tenuous stage where they've had a sublime vision, but if any water gets on it, it vanishes. The king on his heroic journey and all heroes are the ones who suffer most. At some time in every relationship, every man or woman wonders, when did my partner turn into a frog? <laughs> Whether you get through this crisis hinges on your ability to see the divine. At first, we fail. The king marries the queen, and you might hope the story will end with them living happily ever after, but they can't take it. Every marriage replays this scene, and the marriage can dissolve at this point. She turns into a frog. He turns into a boar. They are unable to sustain the heavenly vision that started it all. The frog needs water. The bliss you experience at the beginning of your marriage is true but you cannot stand it. If you hang on and go through the dry time without water, the glory of your first meeting will return, less fragile this time, but you have to persist to be able to touch the bliss of heaven and the trials of ordinary life. <sighs> What, what, what an insight that uh, we fall in love. And, and the falling in love is generally putting onto that other person the gold that is within us. And therefore, we cannot or do not or are not relating to them at the level of humanity. Why? because we have glorified, deified them, all right? And they can't live up to it. And over time, that will become obvious. And then all hell will break loose. It's the story of every marriage, of every relationship, you know? That, that, that it starts off in the glory phase, but then it has to come down to earth. You know, it has to, it has to come down to reality, to the water. And this is where now I think Johnson uh, offers us some, some hope because we all are going to go through this. And it's not just with people, it's with uh, institutions. It's a story I, I like to tell. I've probably told it here before. It was, it was, I was, I was studying to be a Jesuit priest. This is, uh, before my Episcopal days, uh, I was in the Jesuit seminary, and the church had done some terrible thing. Five or six of us were sitting in the, in the kitchen, <clears throat> and an old priest walked by, and, and we told him the terrible thing that the church had done, and isn't it awful, you know? And uh, I'll never forget this. Um, 
he just turned and said, ah, our mother, the whore. We were dumb, dumbfounded. What do you do if your mother's a whore? What do you do if, if the, 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 the goal that we were projecting onto the church at that time uh, let us down? But this man had the wisdom to know that it has to let you down. Human institutions are going to let you down. Human beings are going to let you down. AA is going to let you down. You know, your sponsor is going to let you down. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And if you can get through that without running away, without cursing it, and you be damned and killing the frog, then you have a chance. Then you have a chance to experience uh, real love and, and real relationship and uh, maturity. But you got to stay and you got to go through and you got to take back your gold that you put onto it. Next section is titled The Nearness of God. And here he says, the third kind of loneliness is the most subtle and difficult. It is the loneliness of being dangerously close to God. The proximity of God is always registered first as extreme pain. To be near it, yet unable to touch the thing you want most, is unendurable. The medieval proverb says, the only cure for loneliness is aloneness. In the Western world, loneliness has reached its peak. The old ways that used to protect us have worn thin. We're at the point where the king has killed the frog and we feel perpetual incurable loneliness. When we're in this kind of pain, we cry out to be freed from our suffering. But when our understanding deepens, we go off somewhere, sit still, and determine not to move until the dilemma is resolved. For some time, the journey is hellish. I don't know whether it's possible for us to get through this stage more quickly, or if it is a set path we have to traverse at its own pace, not ours. When we are able to move from solitude to vision, redemption takes place and loneliness vanishes, not because it gets filled, but because it was illusory in the first place. It could never be filled. A new kind of consciousness arises that does not find the imminence of God unendurable. There never was anywhere to go outwardly, but there is a lot to do inwardly. The change of consciousness that turns loneliness into solitude is genius. Each time the handless maiden comes to a crisis, she goes to the forest in solitude. This is especially powerful in a woman's way. It is the feminine spirit. 
solitude, and community. As an intuitive introvert, I rarely feel lonely when I'm alone. When I was in my early 20s, I took a job in a lookout tower, fire watching in the forest. I was alone on a mountain peak for four months, and I never felt lonely. Reality didn't catch me there. I was not in danger of my queen leaving me. But the moment I returned to civilization, loneliness descended on me like a landslide. How could I be so happy on the mountaintop and then rubbed so raw when I came back down? I didn't want to live my whole life on a mountaintop. I'm not a hermit. I had to go back and forth as the king did until the visionary life could finally stand the impact of the water of reality. The queen in me had to learn to withstand the water. It's a process. I believe that everyone who has touched the realm of spirit has to go through this antechamber. If you're honest and perceptive, you can tell the difference between regressive loneliness, the first kind, and the ineffable second and third types of loneliness, where you sense, then see what you cannot yet have. The second and third types of loneliness are nearly indistinguishable. If you can say exactly what you are lonely for, it will reveal a lot. Do you want to go back where you came from, to the good old days, or have you seen a vision you can't live without? They're as different as backward and forward. Dr. Jung said that every person who came into his consulting room was either 21 or 45, no matter their chronological age. The 21-year-old is looking backward and must conquer it. The 45-year-old is being touched by something he cannot yet endure. These are the only two subjects of therapy. Boy, that is profound. Um, what, what touched me in that was uh, my own experience of having two bottoms, one uh, at an early age in my, in my 20s, uh, and then another, another bottom uh, in, in, in my late 40s. And, and it fits exactly uh, what, he, what he's saying here that every person who came into the consulting room was either 21 or 45, no matter what their age was. The 21-year-old is looking backward and must conquer it. We, uh, uh, how many, how many uh, young, young people have this failure to, to, to launch is, is what psychologists call it these days. They have a failure to move forward, a failure to accept the challenges that lay ahead of them and, and suck them up and go through them. They wanna run back, regress in some ways. Uh, and drugs uh, and alcohol are a, a, a beautiful uh, uh, um, way for treating that. You know, it doesn't work, but, but uh, it brings about, uh, it brings about what? Uh, a return to, to mother. Uh, a return to the womb, a failure to grow up, a failure to move forward. Uh, that's that's the, the regressive side. And, and, and the, the other side is, is the fear of, of going forward. 
um, something that he can't endure. And yet you have to move forward. Uh, this is the midlife crisis uh, where, where, where you, you feel like you've been put in the belly of the beast, you know, uh, 40 days, 40 nights in the desert for Jesus. It's, it's facing the temptations that come uh, in all of our lives. And yet to, to, uh, to move forward, to, to, to endure is a big word, uh, to persist. Uh, and, and, and in the doing of that is the only way to get through it. And Will, Bill Wilson had a wonderful phrase when uh, he was looking, analyzing himself, you know, uh, when, when he kind of came to his own bottom. Uh, there, 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 there was no way under, around, over. Uh, I had to go through it. He had to go through. And in the going through is where the change happens. Johnson ends with uh, a little subsection here on solitude, which is the answer to the problem. He says, the Garden of Eden and the heavenly Jerusalem are the same place, depending on whether you are looking backward or forward. A person touched by loneliness is a holy person. He is caught in the development of individuation. He's caught becoming a self, becoming a true self. Whether it's a development or a regression depends on what he does with it. Loneliness can destroy you, or it can fire you up for a Dante-like journey through hell and purgatory to find paradise. St. John of the Cross called this the dark night of the soul. The worst suffering I've ever experienced has been loneliness, the kind that feels as though it has no cure, that nothing can touch it. One day, at the midpoint in my life, a little like Dante, I got so exhausted from it that I went into my bedroom, lay face down on my bed and said, I'm not going to move until this is resolved. I stayed a long time and the loneliness did ease a little. Dante fell out of hell, shimmied down the hairy leg of the devil, went through the center of the world and started up the other side, which was purgatory. I felt better, but as soon as I got up and began to do anything, my loneliness returned. I made many round trips until gradually an indescribable quality began to suffuse my life and loneliness loosened its grip. Nothing outside changed. The change was entirely inside. Thomas Merton wrote a beautiful treatise on solitude. He said that certain individuals are obliged to bear the solitude of God. Solitude is loneliness evolved to the next level of reality. He who is obliged to bear the solitude of God should not be asked to do anything else. It's such a difficult task. 
For monastics, solitude was one of the early descriptions of God. If you can transform your loneliness into solitude, you're one step away from the most precious of all experiences. This is the cure for loneliness. Uh, to stay, to endure, uh, uh, to stay the course. Uh, I, I, get, uh, I get notes from people who are uh, doing two-way prayer, get a lot of them. Uh, oftentimes that's what, that's what I'll tell them, uh, you know, stay the course. It, 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 may, it may feel wonderful uh, to be in touch with God, uh, but it's probably too much to bear. And there's going to come dry times and you're going to have to go back over and over. Uh, and, and you go there and you pick up your gold. You pick up the gold of your connection with the great reality that is within and you carry it as long as you can carry it. Uh, but there will probably come a time when it becomes too much and you give it back uh, to something or to someone or to some other uh, fantasy and, and go chase that for a while. It's a process. Recovery is a process. Uh, Johnson has a phrase that I, I dearly love. He says, it's boiling in the oil of transformation. And, uh, and so we boil and, uh, and, and, uh, we understand more, uh, but you know what? I mean, there's always more to learn. And, 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 and so um, here, here's where Jung taught me a wonderful lesson. And it was this, that after midlife, success has nothing to teach a man. One more victory, one more success, one more uh, uh, notch on your belt isn't going to teach you a damn thing. But when you fail, when, you, when you're knocked down, that's the opportunity uh, to benefit from the boiling in the oil that you have just experienced. And um, a final thing from Jung uh, that, that also helped me, he said, those people who haven't found God probably haven't looked low enough that it's not uh, finding God in the clouds like the flying Dutchman, but it's finding him in the everyday reality of my own life, that probably the very last place I'd ever think to look for him. Uh, there he is. The great reality is indeed within. So uh, Robert Johnson, I, ho I hope you're liking this. Um, uh, he's a, a beautiful, beautiful teacher, beautiful guy. And um, I'm grateful he uh, came into my life and I'm grateful you did too. So thank you for.